Amen and amen. May God fill us up. You know, outside uh, our back door at our home, um, well, the last three months there's been a spider. Um, and I can see it because uh, we've got a glass door and we can, you know, turn things on in the backyard and whatnot. And um, it's, been, it's been growing uh, bigger and bigger. And we're good as long as the spider stays on the outside and I'm on the inside. That's, that's all fine by me. And so uh, every now and again, um, I get to turn on a light and that light attracts moths. Um, and sometimes a spider gets one and, and sometimes the spider does not. And, and the times that the spider gets one are those moments where I'm like excited for the spider yet sad for the moth. Um, and I got to tell you I'm, that, that in James, I feel like the moth. I feel like um, God's getting me and wrecking me. Um, and so as we jump into this scripture this morning, you got to know um, that um, as Jeff and I have talked and even just as I have continued to pray over these scriptures that God continues to, to buffet me. I have no um, ownership <laughs> over what we're about to talk about. I have no um, thought that I've got this down. Believe, believe that. And, and I think that we've got to We've got to know that when God catches us, God's going to root something out in us. God's going to destroy something uh, around us so that we might be um, more like, like him. With that said, let's go to God's word. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. If you're able and willing, would you stand? My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here is a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Spirit of the living God, you have given us these words. You've caused James to write them down 
And you have brought them across the centuries so that we might read them, we might understand them, we might hear them. So God, in your mercy and grace, would you allow these words to jump off of the page and alive in our reality like never before? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated if you're still standing. Over the last two weeks, Jeff's been laying out some very foundational things in James. There are some very important definitions and clarifications in James that that we need to to go back and understand before we actually get a little bit deeper into this text. First, we must persevere. Jeff talked about this in week one. We're all being changed and shaped into the perfect image of the living God. That means that God is going to remove, kill, destroy things in us that are not one with the kingdom. Second, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to get angry. We have to be aware of our own anger and our own ways of engaging people. We may want to accomplish God's will, but we can't do it our way. So watch what you say, listen to others, and do not get angry. Or at least know where your anger is coming from, whether it's yours or it's righteous anger. You also have to be careful about where you're placing it. So now that we've mastered all of those things, we dive into our scripture today. Believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. And I, and I think I can go a little bit deeper about what James is saying. Here's what James is saying. Favoritism is not good. In fact, James calls it evil, but we'll get that later. Favoritism is problematic, to say the least. And James is going to make that abundantly clear. If you grew up with a sibling, you may well know what favoritism is. Between my sister and I, we know who the favorite is. But we only know because we've talked about it, we've discussed it, and we've decided who the favorite has been of my parents. And no, I'm not going to tell you who that is, because my parents are watching and Christmas is coming. But Christmas also happens to be my sister's birthday, but I digress. You know who the favorites are. It's not that difficult. If you don't know who the favorite is, then you're probably the favorite. Those who aren't the favorites always know. Favoritism shows an inconsistency in what we profess and what is true of us. James continues to clarify that faith in Christ is inconsistent with favoritism. How do we know that? Well, God shows no favoritism. And it's clear in the scriptures. And here are a few. 
Deuteronomy 10, 17. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords. He is the great God, the mighty and awesome God who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. You can also see 2 Chronicles 19.7, Romans 2.11, Colossians 3.25, Job 3, 34.19, 1 Timothy 5.2, Acts 10.34-36, and there are others. There's a story called The Sneetches by Dr. Seuss. It's an excellent example of favoritism. And his story begins this way. Now the star-bellied sneeches had bellies with stars. The plain-bellied sneeches had none upon thars. Those stars weren't so big. They were really so small. You might think a, such a thing wouldn't matter at all. <laughs> but as the book goes on, Seuss talks about the pride of exceptionalism that is spoken about by the star-bellied sneeches. Did you get that? It is spoken about. Slow to speak. He exposes how the exceptionalism was passed on to the children and expressed by the children on the playground. He expresses how is experienced in the larger culture around food and celebrations about who is invited and who is not. The book goes on to talk about the experience of the Sneetches when the stars are made interchangeable. First, the one with stars get, first the ones with no stars get stars. So everybody's got stars. But then the ones with stars get no stars and they switch places. But what's interesting is that the locus of power still exists within the initial group, regardless of whether or not they have stars. Their power existed regardless of whether or not they had what they had, and they sure didn't give it up. The whole book is turned on its ear only when the plastic surgeon arrives and takes all their money and collapses the economy. Only then does the community come together. Apart from the happy ending, where they all come together, it's a great story that's fairly sophisticated. I went looking for other stories, and there are multitudes about how favoritism is shown. And, and what I thought would be fun would be is if you wanted to put in the chat right now, just type real quick, what's your favorite story about favoritism? It could be a kid's story. It could be a book that you read. Just throw that in the comments. We'd love to get a list of those stories that we tell each other about how the playing field is level. As you do that, I want to expand this idea about favoritism because I think we get it, but we don't. I think we have an idea of what it is and we have an emotion about what it is, but really to set, center ourselves on, on, on a definition of favoritism. And, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm going to use this, this study from 2017, a sociological study on favoritism. I, I didn't know it existed. I'm paraphrasing here. Favorites are defined according to the following major features. One. Favorites belong to a core around an idea or a leader. Two, they are present in the circle of people 
around a leader. Favorites are involved with the ruling elite in the circle. Four, they possess desirable personal qualities. And five, they maintain a clear place and role in a core group. Favoritism, though socially located, is born out of communication. We communicate favoritism through spoken and written and geographic ways, through artistic acknowledgement of those who belong in the category of favorites. Our communication forms social fields and boundaries at every level of society. But we've already talked about that. Quick to listen, slow to speak. Again from the study, as a part of the informal structure of interactions in the society, favoritism imposes sanctions upon relationships in all types of communities. From religious to secular, from social clubs to political groups, formatting the story. We are living in a formatted story based upon communications that have been sent to us, given to us from long before we got here. Favoritism is bondage and it's inconsistent with faith in Christ. So here is where I'm going to have to say you're going to have to persevere because James doesn't get easy on us. James immediately launches into an example which seems to be true, but not specific to any one situation. James is a bit mysterious when he talks about Mr. Goldfinger. No, really. Literally, what the text says is, for if a person gold-fingered in shining clothes. I, I don't make this up. It goes on. But also a person poor in filthy clothing come into your assembly and you show Mr. Goldfinger his seat of pride and you say, slow to speak, to the poor man standing in the corner, sit on the floor. Do you see what happened there? The man with... Gold on his fingers. We, we move quickly and we do something about. We, we, we help. We show. We exhibit what... We exhibit our favoritism without saying anything. And to the poor man, we don't even engage. We just speak at a distance. Deference. Go stand in the corner. Go sit on the floor, technically under my footstool. You know what's crazy is James doesn't even give us time to think about whether or not you were there when it happened or if you were the one who did it. He launches directly into two questions that are clearly to be answered affirmatively. Have you not made discriminations among yourselves and have you not become judges with evil thoughts? These are less of a question and more of an accusation. We are all implicated in our answer. And let me be blunt. If you answer these with no, you are a liar. And don't get mad at me. We 
have sinned. We continue to perpetuate this in our own culture. We need to repent. Our faith in Jesus is inconsistent with favoritism. James goes on to interrogate us after making his point really clear by reminding us who God has chosen to inherit the kingdom. If you're struggling for an answer, it's the poor. James says, listen up. Quick to listen. I love what Scott McKnight says about listening in scripture. He says, the word hear or listen in the Bible operates at at least three levels. Attention, absorption, and action. Openness to God's word, filling our being with God's voice and action within God's will and God's way. I want to say that again. Openness to God's word. Are you open to what God's word is going to say to you this morning, today, whenever you're hearing this? Are you filling our being with God's voice? Are you allowing God's voice to actually fill your being, that you absorb the word, not just hear it, but you absorb it? And are you willing to shift, change, make your action different within God's will and God's way? Here's what James wants you to hear. God prioritizes the poor. I see the question that you want to ask. What's the difference between favoritism and prioritizing people? Favoritism is this. Placing the socially acceptable at the center for our benefit while keeping others out. Prioritization is placing those in need at the center for their benefit and the benefit of the community while inviting others in. The gospel of God is always inviting others in. It's looking out for those who have been marginalized and pushed outside of that bounded circle. How do we know this? God shows no favoritism and it's clear in the scriptures. God also prioritizes the poor. And it is clear in the scriptures. Here are a few. Matthew 25, 31 through 46. I'm going to read the lower part of that. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did, did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. It's an affirmation. See also Proverbs 19.17, Proverbs 14.31, 1 John 3.17, Proverbs 29.7, Ezekiel 16.49-50, Jeremiah 22.15-16, and 16, Deuteronomy 15.7-8, and 8, Luke 4.16-19, and, and others. This idea is clear in Mary's Magnificat. 
in the Beatitudes, the first messianic community in Acts, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, and yet, and yet, we continue to insult the poor, verse 6. James ends his interrogation of us by accusing us of being exploited by the rich, manipulated in the courts by the rich, and allowed the rich to blaspheme Christ's name. We, church, have shown favoritism. To the wealthy and powerful, the, inf in the influential, <clears throat> in hopes that we would be brought into their circle, that we might benefit abundantly in some way. We have looked to the powerful so that their power would profit us. We look to the wealthy to accomplish God's will in our way. We look to the influential to shape our purpose and what we need to be doing is reminding ourselves that God is our provider for community, for life abundant, and so much more. God is our strength and our power. God is our will and our way. God is our purpose. Our problem, my problem, is that I idealize these things in principle, yet I dismiss them in reality. I told you this was messing with me. So what are we to do? James goes on and he leaves this interrogation of us and begins to instruct us on the things we should already know. Things we've heard and learned. Love your neighbor as yourself and you're doing right. Show favoritism and you sin. And no matter what sin you commit, you're no better than a murderer. How significant is this? The characteristics of human relationships are so powerful that they can influence significant events, determine the fate of others, rule countries, influence education, affect our environment, and ultimately the lives of people. This is part of the reason that God repeats over and over again throughout the scriptures that we are to love our obligation is to God and to each other. Love God, love each other. Once again, we should already know this, but I want to expand just a little bit on what that means. How do we make love functional in our lives? How do we make love more functional? We talk about it all the time that we are supposed to go out and love, but how do we make it actually more functional in our lives? First, I think it's really important to ask the question, are we free? 
Are we free? And more importantly, is there something that is keeping me from doing what God is asking me to do? It's an internal question. You have to ask yourself. You have to dive deep. You have to invite the Lord to show you. Because this, if you, if you and I are not free, then we are in bondage. And I would define that as the impotence of our internal purposefulness because of external social or internal psychological circumstance. We don't have the power to actualize what God is doing because of something external or internal. Put another way, there may be something that you need to address that God needs to help you see so that you can access freedom. If we are free, if you are free and that's not standing in your way, then your task is more involved. There are three things that I think we need to do and we need to do repetitively. One, you need to identify actions. We have to identify that which is going to move us toward prioritizing the poor, which means listening. Quick to listen. Remember, openness to God's word, filling our being with God's voice, action within God's will and God's way. But according to James, it's the action that we need to engage. And what is that action? Well, James actually tells us in verses 12 and 13, and I didn't read those because I wanted to put those here. Verses 12 and 13 say this. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The action, according to James, is mercy. We need to show mercy. And as I've studied this, I believe that we are a menace when we play favorites. And we show mercy, triumphs over judgment, when we prioritize the poor and marginalized, including those affected by racism, sexism, ageism, ableism, and the like. In showing mercy, we can actually show that we love. Two. Understand our own beliefs and behaviors. But we understand beliefs and behaviors that actually help us do mercy. We need to engage the necessary beliefs and behaviors for us to deliver the results of love. Our work as reconcilers is paramount here. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 verse, um, verses 11 through 21. I'm just going to read verse 20 says this, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God's calling us into himself that he might whittle away the things that are keeping us from going out and doing what God wants to do in this world by inviting others to himself. 
And when we stand in the way, when we show favoritism, we tell others they're not welcome in God's community. We should take encouragement from this ancient Chinese proverb. Go to the people. Live among them. Learn from them. Love them. Start with what they know. Build on what they have. But the best leaders, when their task is done, the people will remark, we have done it ourselves. In order to do this, we have to be with people. In order to do this, we have to be with people who are poor and marginalized that we can actually hear their stories, care about their injuries and wounds, feel their pain as Jesus showed us how to do all of those things. Without God's belief in us as reconcilers and our behavior of empathy, we will never be able to engage mercy. And if we can't engage mercy, then we can't show the love of Christ. We have to allow ourselves to be empathetic to those around us, which requires listening, quick to listen. Number three, we have to normalize the experience. Our proximity and engagement with the poor and marginalized will need to be consistent. And by consistent, I don't mean once a year, writing a check, dropping something off, very particular about being with. And so is Jesus. As we step into the Advent season in a couple weeks, we will talk about Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus came to be with us and experience all that is going on with us and teach us and lead us and bring us to salvation. It's that model that we have to emulate. Our work as reconcilers is to be with people, not just swing by, drop by. As the band comes up, I think we find that, that reality in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. It's one of my favorite verses. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in, his, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Let the spider get you. For what God wants to do in us is shape us, change us, release us to go do what God wants us to do. Most of us tend to think that our words and our actions do not make a significant difference on the global world scale. 
our lifestyle or location, seemingly small contributions. I guess when all of that is viewed in isolation, it may not move the needle very much. But it matters. It matters significantly. One last thing I'll say before I I end. This has been a rough sermon to prepare for. It's forced me to my knees. It's forced me to think. And if you want to go a little bit deeper, I invite you to listen to this again when it goes up. And every place that I say favoritism, replace it with the word racism. And I think you'll find that we're in a desperate moment. But here's the hope. And what I'm holding on to is that we are the church. We are the ones that are called by God. We are the people of God. So you and I have, a, have marching orders. So let's go and show the world what God can do through us. Amen and amen.